This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm HF Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so excited to have a guest that's been with us before, but he's going to be back by himself this time. Dr. Tom Mayer, which is a foremost expert on leadership, has spoken nationally and internationally, has spoken many times for the American College of Emergency Physicians, uh, written well over 60 articles, 60 book chapters, many books. Uh, He is... uh, Uh, speaks a lot about patient flow. Now, the thing that really is near and dear to my heart is he serves as the medical director of the NFL Players Association. So we are so excited. I'm sure there's much I've left out, but welcome, Dr. Mayer. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. It's an honor. Well, Tom, once again, thank you very much for coming back. And, uh, you know, we had a great discussion about uh, yours and uh, and Kirk's book, uh, Hardwiring Flow, on our last episode. But today we're gonna we're gonna pivot and move in a little bit a little different direction, and we're gonna discuss uh, an article that you wrote in JAMA uh, regarding um, measurements and and particularly measurements when it comes to hospitals being ranked for patient experience or or our HCAP scores. And with our current measurement, you know, it's it's all it's all norm based, as you said, and uh, you know it's based on percentiles. And and tell us tell us some of the drawbacks of, of that uh, of that scoring methodology, percentile well, based. Thanks, HF. And I, I mean, percentile scores benefit no one except survey companies. Period. Full stop. End of story. They don't encourage benchmarking. They don't in, encourage shared best practices. In fact, they discourage those to the extent that, you know, if, if you're getting better, but your competition's getting better faster, you're getting worse from a percentile standpoint. So other than the fact that they are, and let's emphasize that it is a fact, despite what the survey companies would say, that it is counterproductive, that it is unholy, satanic, and destroying our healthcare providers, it's fine. <laughs> so so how can you convince us that, uh, you know, you didn't write this article because Tom Brady gave you a low score on your patient satisfaction evaluation? No, oh, that's a great question, Jake. That's a great <laughs> one. You know, it's, um, you know, you have to talk to TB12 about his rating of me, but uh, I, I trust in his judgment on, on that one. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I was in a debate with uh, someone from Press Ganey. I'll just mention who it was because it's a fact with the Council of Medical Specialty Societies. I happened to be in Ukraine at that time uh, serving, uh, it was a mobile emergency team serving um, displaced persons. The difference between a displaced person and a refugee is the border. If you don't cross the border, you're displaced 900 miles. But at any rate, I had to tape it. And, um, you know, they, they didn't, it didn't sit well with those folks. Uh, and, and, you know, somehow the argument that, that saying that a percentile score, and, and as you know, my, the, my co-author, one of them was Don Berwick, 
yeah. uh, somebody I revere uh, and, and I always feel like, how do I know what I think until I see what Don says? Um, so I was privileged to have him on, but but he's talked for generations or, or for years, decades, about the toxicity of pay for performance, including, and we limited our discussion to patient experience, but the fact is it could apply to any type of score within healthcare that we need to move a bit away from a percentile-based to a criterion-based system where everyone can get an A. Uh, because everyone should aspire to get an A, but everyone should be capable of getting an A, meaning hitting a threshold uh, uh, which is uh, uh, recognized as excellence, number one. Number two, we were very clear that if that's iterative, that that will change over time, that what is excellent is is not permanent, but moves as the experience moves and as, as the field moves in terms of how we treat from our discussion about hardwiring flow, you know, I feel whether you're talking about hardwiring flow, patient experience, patient safety, leadership training, another topic altogether, that those are disciplines, evidence-based disciplines. And as that discipline of patient experience becomes more and more and more honed over time, then of course it's going to change. And, and the representative from Prescani wanted to say, well, this discourages benchmarking hog wash to use a southern term that a mixed audience can hear um uh, that's just not true it's it's factually inaccurate and i think morally bankrupt to make a statement like that you can't get better without percentile scores Let, let's just talk a little bit more and define the terms for those that maybe hadn't read the article so when you're talking about percentile score percentile scores you're talking about grading on a curve essentially so you know if you had a an essay test in high school or college, the, the teacher's only going to give so many A's, so many B's, so many C's, so many D's. Uh, whereas if you had a, a different type of test, and, and so that's the percentile scoring, whereas if you have a different type of test, maybe it's a multiple choice, and everybody in the class gets all the answers right, everybody gets an A. Um, that, that's what we're talking about, the difference between percentile versus criterion, correct? Exactly. And to be clear, your analogy or metaphor, I should say, is excellent because we built on the work of, of the great Alfie Kahn, K-O-H-N, who actually wrote a, a New York Times essay regarding education called Why Can't Everyone, or no, I'm sorry, Everybody Should Be Able to Get an A. And, and that's absolutely true because in the first scenario with percentiles grading on a curve, what are you doing? You're sitting in a classroom, you're looking at the person to your left and your right, and, and you're trying to say, how can I get better than they are? You know, how, if they ask me a question on, you know, what was the answer to number three, I'm going to tell them the wrong answer because that way I'll get it right and they'll get it wrong and I'll get a better score. And I'm um, being dramatic, of course, when I say that, and, and someone would accuse me maybe of overstatement, but not by much. I mean, think about how medical schools in this country have traditionally selected medical students. Do they choose them for the ability to work well together, to work in teams, to cross uh, borders uh, between doctors and nurses, ner doctors and other doctors, uh, to encourage and to use uh, leading skills? I don't use the term leadership skills, uh, but, but the answer is no. We select them by their ability to crawl over the backs of the students around them to get higher scores, to get higher grades, to get better recommendations. 
You know, we put them in medical school. We don't teach them those skills. We put them through residency. We don't teach them then. We freshly mint them as, you know, you are a doctor and send them out and say, oh, by the way, you have to get along with other people. You have to lead people. You have to coach and mentor, and you have to be capable of being coached and mentored, all which drills back into what we were talking about patient experience. This, as, as Don said years ago, should create a new moral ethos in healthcare, a new ability to cooperate across boundaries as opposing to compete. Think about the fact that right now, despite the fact that they're not required to do so, uh, H, HCAPS is called hospital compare. Why can't it be hospital collaborate? You know, it doesn't have to be hospital compete or physician compete. It should be physician collaborate. And so that's what we call for. And our third author, as you may know, is Arjun Venkatesh, who actually leads uh, a lot of the efforts for uh, HCAPS and, and CMS in that regard. So uh, we, we are told that it has shaken up uh, even the highest levels of CMS to say, you know what, they're, they're, these guys are on to something. You know, it's it's so interesting because, and I'm sure all of us, you know, when I was in college, you took the class that you were going to be able to get the A in. You know, that's what you wanted. You wanted to get the A, and of course you wanted to learn, but that wasn't your primary, that wasn't your primary objective. Your primary objective was to get that A because the person with the most A's was, you know, they were going to get into medical school. And Oh, HF, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, decades of that. Generations. And, and, I, and I remember, I remember back then, I, I, you know, you would hear about people going to, you know, we went to school in the South, they'd, they'd go to some Ivy League school, and I would be, I would say, you mean you take a class where it's just pass-fail? I mean, that was so foreign, that was so foreign to me back then, but, uh, you know, it, it works, and, and you, in your article, you brought up the, um, you brought up board certification, you know, when 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 we get board board certified, it's not your board certified with an A, B, or a C. You're you know, if you're board certified, you're board certified. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And as, as we said in the article, well, medical schools are moving away from grading on a curve for percentile basis. They're grading for you know more of a criterion based. And and interestingly, uh, uh, the majority of not just preclinical, but clinical rotations are being judged that way. I was fortunate I went to Duke, and uh, although I'm widely known uh, as the only mistake the Duke Admissions Committee ever made, uh, <laughs> but back in those days, which was when the Earth's crust was cooling, uh, we had pass-fail in all of our courses, uh, preclinical all the way through clinical. So um, it can be done, it has been done, it's time to stop doing it. Uh, or start doing it correctly uh, throughout healthcare in our view. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the issues with percentile rankings. Um, one of the things that I think is likely occurring is that the rich are probably getting richer. So if you are a well-endowed institution, you have resources to devote huge teams to patient experience, to all these different quality metrics. Uh, whereas if you're a smaller place, you don't have those resources and then CMS and other insurers um, will reimburse the higher rated places at a greater rate than they will those that are lower on the spectrum. So these these quality measures, these patient satisfaction scores tie into your reimbursement. So 
those that are already well resourced get a higher payment so they can devote more resources so they can get even better um, scores. Is, is that something that you've observed? Oh, there's no question about that. I mean, hence my view that it's a satanic system. And uh, I was a theology major when I was in college, so I use the word advisedly. But, you know, we're, if, if you talk to healthcare executives these days, and I know you guys live and breathe with them all the time, what's the number one issue? Almost number one through 10 is what I call the second pandemic, which is workforce staffing, workforce retention, uh, workforce, I like the term re-recruitment. When my beautiful and brilliant wife agreed to marry me, she said, yes, I'll marry you, but you have to re-recruit me continuously. And I didn't know what the hell that meant, but I learned pretty quick. And I've used it ever since, you know, our, our what I call 18 members, we shouldn't take them for granted because if we know who the 18 members are, the competition down the street knows who the 18 members are as well. So if that's the case, that ties into burnout and resiliency, and that ties to the issue of, of lots of them, EHR, one of them, but, but these percentile-based uh, grading on a curve scores are also there because they're simply unfair. They're just unfair. And as the old Southern saying goes, as, as you just said more eloquently, Jake, uh, him what has gets. And yeah. uh, those large systems and endowed in universities get because they got staffs to back them up to gain the system. And the system, first of all, is not a game or should not be treated as a game. And uh, systems should not be able to game that system. You know, it's when I was reading reading y'all's article, I, I was thinking I just finished reading uh, Dr. Deming's book, The uh, the New Economics. Yeah. And I said, this sounds so much like some things that, that Dr. Deming said in his book. And so I, I, I wrote out the broke out the book and uh, in his chapter on uh, people management, that's what he was. You know, Deming was talking about this stuff 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And, and we're just now catching on to it, you know, just, just yeah, like with all the other things that he wrote about so long ago. Yeah, Deming and Duran, first of all, I think those insights were timeless. Um, you know, his emphasis that that uh, 85 percent of the problems are system problems, not people problems, doesn't mean you can't fix the people. Um, as you know, Paul Battalden uh, famously said, every system is perfectly designed to get precisely the results it gets. Well, everybody quotes that, but I don't think I know you guys uh, embrace that, number one. But number two, truly understand it. Uh, a lot of people don't because what he's saying, you know, an inevitable conclusion of that premise is that if you don't like your results, if you don't love them, if you don't take them to bed at night every night and embrace them, then you have to change the system. So. Let's talk about changing the system. You mentioned that Berwick's been making this argument for decades, and I see the article that um, you cited in your article, um, the toxicity of pay for performance was from 1995. So 30 years ago, we've been talking about this, or he's identified it, and others have mentioned it. Why is why have we not moved in this direction? Qui bono? I mean, who benefits? You know, who benefits and, and who benefits are the healthcare systems that are at or perceived they are at. And as you appropriately said, Jake, have the resources to invest in their continued success in percentile scores. Uh, 
And, and let's just be honest and clear. I, I know and and I like many of the people in the survey companies. I've spoken uh, as a speaker uh, at their conventions in the past, but their survey companies have made not millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars off of this culture, off of this ability to say we and only we can measure the percentile basis. And as you know, they've moved into uh, solution selling, for lack of a better term. We'll not only tell you where your problems are, we'll tell you how to fix those problems. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, an endless uh, loop of that culture that's allowed to continue to uh, exist. How do you interrupt that culture? Leaders lead. I always say probably a different uh, uh, different podcast, but you know, leadership is worthless, but leading is priceless. And leaders will have to step up and say, no more. We will not do that. And Baptist could be one of the first systems to say, no more. We understand workforce staffing issues. We understand burnout. We understand resiliency, which to me is really adaptive capacity. Again, perhaps another podcast, but but that's what it's going to take to to retain people. And, and let me tell you, my personal opinion is when when big successful systems declare we will change the systems and processes, we will move from grading on a curve and percentile scores immediately. You're going to retain more people, you're going to recruit more people, and you're going to re-recruit the best talent by having them understand that you've created a new culture in which you can practice and everyone can get an A. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, my wife is kindly says my next book should be titled Everyone's Entitled to My Opinion. But yeah, my well, opinion. one of the things you mentioned in the article is that, you know, some of these some of the measurements and, and the focus on these areas like patient satisfaction is is important as well as, you know, quality is important. Um, so, you know, we, we talked about a few of the, the vendors and a few of the percentile ranking systems out there, but there are some criterion based ranking systems, right? Like LeapFrog comes to mind where can you, can everybody get an A in LeapFrog or is it, a, is it also percentile? And are there other, other alternatives, I guess is what I'm asking. If we think these measurements in some way are valuable, are there alternatives that are already out there? Oh, of course. There's many alternatives as are, there are creative people who, number one, say no to percentile systems. And, and then you say, oh, well, there's a there's a hundred ways or 10 ways or a thousand ways to say yes to a criterion based system, which creates a new moral ethos. And it's that's why we titled the article that way, because it's no less a move than that, than to say we are not morally, we can no longer afford and parenthetically should never have allowed these systems in the first place. But yes, it can be done. So we're not prescribing, we're proscribing. We're proscribing percentile curves and prescribing uh, multiple ways in which it could be done. And as you know, we suggested some of those uh, in the article, but, but only as suggestions. In, in the article you also talked about, and, and I guess that in anything, there's going to be some natural distribution. Always. You know, but you talk about, you know, our objective shouldn't be 
moving more people to the right side of the bell-shaped curve. It sh our motivation should be moving that entire curve over to the right. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, uh, as a natural, thank you for for uh, seeing that, observing that, and seeing the importance of it. Because when you say move people from the left to the right side of the curve, you know, again, it's it's cajoling uh, toxicity of pay for performance, get better, get better. And performance evaluations, which are steeped in neo-colonialism, I own your <laughs> get better or get out. Uh, pardon my language, by the way, uh, but as you can tell, it's something about which I feel strongly. Mm -hmm. and, and instead of that, you you have a team of people saying, "Come on, y'all, how can we get together? So let's talk about ideas on how we move that whole curve to the right, how we change the systems and processes." how we don't leave anyone behind. You know, we, we are able to move people and feel, you know, innovation always occurs not at the speed of intelligence, genius, but at the speed of trust. And if an organization creates that new moral ethos and that new culture and, and says, we trust you to come up with ideas, understanding that some of them won't work, but give them to us anyway. Samuel Beckett, the great playwright was superb on this. He said, try, fail try again, fail again, fail better. So absolutely, there's a, there's uh, there's at least 10, probably 100 and undoubtedly 1,000, if not 10,000 different ways to do it, but they're all guided by that sense. We're not gonna leave anybody behind. We are a team, we will act like a team and not just say team, we're gonna play team. I so, like that, you know, you may fail, but fail better. Hey, I didn't miss it quite as bad as I did. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you know, two plus two is eight versus two plus two is five. Well, they're both wrong, but five is a lot closer than <laughs> than eight. Well, um, or as Edison said, you know, I didn't invent the the incandescent light bulb. I invented two thousand ways not to do a two <laughs> incandescent light bulb. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that uh, your article has had some effect um, and you know stirred the pot a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about the reaction you've seen, um, and you know is is there hope? I guess on the horizon. Oh, there's definitely hope. There's always hope. I mean, I think my uh, to the point about leadership is a noun, but leading is not only a verb, but a verb that is always and can only be in the active voice of acting on behalf of the patient and of the people who take care of the patient. And that's what all of you do in your jobs every day. Uh, but, but my point is that when you begin to look at it that way and, and begin to tie culture and action, culture, uh, you know, hardwiring flow, we talked about just stop doing stupid stuff and start doing smart stuff. And, and people are beginning to wake up to that. They're beginning to see that in fact, it doesn't have to be this way, that it can be tied. You can tie passion to purpose. You can tie uh, what I've always called deep joy towards the jobs that we do every day. And the only hope for that is the people that are already in the organization, tapping into their innovation, their creativity. Uh, they'll tell you how to get it right. Um, so we're, we're highly confident that that it can be done. And, and I think conversations like these lead to others saying, you know what, let's have the courage to say that and do that. Let's have the courage to step where others haven't. The key, I think, is when leading people 
encounter resistance, they should say, in my opinion, great, because that tells you you're making real change. If we make a change effort and there's no resistance, there's no change. All you're doing is either tinkering around the edges or adopting best practices a little earlier than the folks down the street. But if you're shaking a system up that people are coming to you with resistance, what they're saying is, I don't know how to do that. And, and you're saying as, as the, the leader, that's okay. That's expected. You know, try, try again, fail better. So it's a, it's a, to me, tremendously exciting. And I think everything a leader does should create hope. So, you know, just thinking particularly about patient satisfaction and how it ties into reimbursement from, you know, you know, it's like 20%, I think, of our value-based care um, from, from CMS. Um, really, it would be it would be tough for for us to say we're we're not going to care about patient satisfaction as long as that 20% is still coming from CMS so is there anything on the payer side i guess that um, uh, that's what i was going to ask yeah are they how how can we incentivize them to adopt different metrics well a great question and first of all the reason to do it is because it's better for the patient and it's better for the people who take care of the patient and in no way did we argue, nor are you in, in remotely implying that we thought patient experience was not uh, not just beneficial, but essential to how we move forward, particularly in a personalized precision care model where we move from what's the matter with you, find it, fix it, to what matters to you as an individual, which moves them from being a recipient of care, a mere recipient of care, to being a participant in their care. And as uh, as Don and others and, and I have said, uh, our, our motto to a certain extent should be nothing about us without us, nothing about you, the patient, without you, the patient and your family weighing in on how you want this taken care of and how to get it done. Lots of science behind that. Just talk about prostate cancer and the options, surgical versus radiologic, and letting the patient and the family make their decisions. So the number one reason to do it is it's the right thing. It's the right thing for the patient and it's the right thing for the people who take care of the patient for all the reasons we talked about. You know, form follows finance. You know, we always say form follows function, but in healthcare it follows finance. <laughs> and so sure, we have to find a way to um, keeping in mind that rewards punish as Alfie Kahn would say, or the toxicity of pay for performance. But, you know, if you reward teams and instead of individuals, broad teams, and you reward people for lifting others up, not beating others down by getting higher scores, higher percentile, but by coaching, mentoring, and, and encouraging across borders so that the entire team within a system or within healthcare writ large is, is uh, is compensated, then then I think that matters. So I, I'm not saying performance doesn't matter. I happen to believe what Don says and has said, as you correctly pointed out, for coming on 30 years. But um, it's there, and if form follows finance, then let's make it a humane, non-satanic way of saying, here's how the dollars get doled out. Who, who sets the uh, who sets the bar? I mean, that, that, I guess that's, you know, when when let's say you have a criterion based 
system okay who's going to decide okay this is where this is where you have to be well uh simple answer leaders the leaders have got to have the moral uh physical emotional spiritual courage to say no more we're not going to do that next thing you know build a team build a powerful guiding coalition as moses did when he had you know, held his arms up in the Battle of the Amalekites. You guys know that one, but uh, your readers can look that one up. That'd be a good one. And, and you and that team, a leader and in, in, in that leader's team moving forward, just say no more. We're not going to do it this way. And it doesn't have to be the entire healthcare system. It has to be simply a team within that system to say, this is what we did. You could do it too. Well, Dr. Mayor, this has been fantastic. Really enjoy this conversation. You know, uh, we may have some listeners that maybe don't agree with us, but I think that's a healthy conversation. Uh, you know, Dr. Russell Acoff, which was someone I admired the work of for many years, he talked about this many, many decades ago about how the present grading system discouraged learning. Uh, you know, we talk about how failure is a positive thing in the improvement world, how we can learn from failure. But the present school systems that we reside in really doesn't set that environment up. So having this conversation today has been really great. Now, I'm going to ask you a really tough question right now. Sure. Uh, it's going to has nothing oh. to do with what we've talked about today, but I think it'll it'll be a little lighter weight since you are the medical director of the NFL Players Association. Tell us about one of your favorite players, just because they're such a great guy. Who's a player that comes to your mind, a present player, that you say, what a what a great human being? Well, first of all, you can't make this up, but Russ Ackoff was a personal friend before he passed away. And so his concept of idealized design has motivated me for years. Uh, I'm always asked, who's your favorite player? All of them. Who's your favorite club? All of them. Because uh, I represent all 2,500 of them. Good answer. Um, but but the, the, I think the thing that is most impressive about dealing one-on-one -on -one with NFL players, is, as I get to do, is how nice they really are. And and that's true of Tom Brady. It's true of Drew Brees. It's true of Lamar Jackson and, and Russell Wilson and the uh, the guys down in the trenches and, and everything. But the one that, that it surprises people somehow is Richard Sherman is one of the kindest, most thoughtful, intelligent people that you would ever want to meet in your life. He's uh, unfortunately at a, uh, we had a, a player rep meeting in the Bahamas once and they set up a, they could set up a faux gambling there. And uh, he taught my wife how to shoot craps. and. And I always say, well, Richard, thank you. That only cost me about $10,000. Uh, <laughs> so all of them, but since you asked specifically, Richard is just one of these very, very kind and thoughtful. Yeah, he'll, he'll just crush you and then he'll just help you up. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Now, how, how long have you been uh, connected, Dr. Mayor, with the, uh, the NFL Player Association? Uh, forever, uh, but since August 1st, 2001. So 21 gotcha. years. Okay, gotcha. I, uh, so this would probably be a little longer. I remember going to an airport, and he, he's no longer uh, with us anymore. But I, I, I uh, had one of those starstruck moments. I'll give you this uh, little story. And I was in North Carolina, and I was walking. And when you see a giant, giants tend to stand out, right? Sure. And all of, a, all of a sudden, I turned to this guy, and I looked up, and I said, 
you're Reggie White. And uh, and, he, and he goes, yes, I am. <laughs> and, right. Big and, smile. Uh, Biggest smile you'd ever see. Kindest person you'd ever meet. And my hand completely disappeared in his hand when I shook <laughs> it. <laughs> but he was so incredibly kind. And he sat yeah. there and talked to me as if, you know, that as if he wasn't in a rush. And and uh, I was just so impressed with how kind he was. So Yeah, and he looked you right in the eye. He wasn't looking over your shoulder for who's yeah. coming up in the line or that stuff. And serendipitously, we uh, – but – purposively we name our nfl players association uh player health and safety committee the mackie white committee for john mackie and reggie white oh great. Uh, tragically as you know died of sleep apnea yeah i do i do mm. well, well dr mayor thank you so much for coming on the podcast again thank you for pushing the envelope and having a very important conversation that needs to be had so thank you so very much. I so am grateful. Thank you for coming on on behalf of all of Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Uh, truly my pleasure. And anytime you that you have an open invitation to invite me back. And if your uh, um, uh, listeners have bad memories and say, oh, yeah, maybe I'll listen to this one. And uh, if those memories die down, I'd love to come back and talk again. Sure. Well, we'll take you up on that. All right. Thank thanks, you. guys. Thank, thank you. you.